1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or
0: SleepNumber.com.
1: I just set out to do this as a labor of love, and I never, ever obviously imagined this history would repeat in any way. I just wanted to give voice to the countless millions of victims of Stalin's atrocities and, and get some justice back. And for me, growing up as a Ukrainian in America, I'd, I'd always, you know, when I tell people I'm from Ukraine, the Americans would switch it in their minds and say, oh, you're from Russia. And on top of that, no one had ever heard of Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. So I felt a lot of this, I don't know, I felt a lot of this pressure around me to try to set the record straight and build greater awareness. and, and Build greater healing uh, through this story.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 1st, 2022. Andrea Chalupa is a writer and podcaster and Ukrainian-American who worked for 15 years on a screenplay about a man named Gareth Jones, a journalist who uncovered the genocide perpetrated by Stalin against Ukrainians in the early 1930s. The film is called Mr. Jones, and it was directed by the great filmmaker Agnestia Holland and released in the middle of the pandemic. It is an incredible piece of work that could not be more relevant to the current news about the conflict in Ukraine. Chalupa joined me in the virtual jungle studio to discuss Gareth Jones, the New York Times reporter in Moscow at the time, Walter Durante, her own grandfather, and the story of how she came to write this film. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 1st, Andrea Chalupa on Mr. Jones and Russia and Ukraine then and now. A quick Warning. This podcast contains disturbing stories of graphic violence, including against children. So I want to start with the question of who Gareth Jones is and how you got interested in him.
1: So Gareth Jones was a young, ambitious, independent Welsh journalist he came from Barrie, Wales, which was a port city at the time in Wales. He had a—I visited his childhood home, and growing up, he had a view of the sea. Where and from all the letters and everything I've, I've read of his life, he used to dream of big adventure and go down to the docks and interview the, the sailors and. As soon as he could, he set off for this life of adventure. Um, He went to Cambridge University and then took all these exciting jobs working for a powerhouse publicist in New York City, which showed him the Great Depression firsthand and the the Hoovervilles, the soup lines in in New York City. Then he was a foreign advisor, a, a secretary for David Lloyd George a fellow Welshman, and the World War I prime minister. So through that, Gareth was in the halls of power in London, and he used all of his connections to hustle his way onto a plane of the newly appointed chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler. And from that flight across Germany with Hitler, uh, he wrote, uh, he published an article saying that if this plane should crash the entire history of Europe would be changed. And so Gareth was somebody whose star was very much on the rise. And he built on that by taking on his next big challenge, which was all the excitement in Moscow over the big social experiment of the worker's paradise. And that was sort of where our story of the film, Mr. Jones takes place with Gareth coming into town, idealistic very much independent. He didn't have a editor behind him or newspaper back home. He wasn't your typical journalist. And that gave him a lot of freedom. And he also came from the, the political power world. So he was name dropping to the Soviets. And that allowed him to talk his way through the front door and getting a Soviet uh, sanctioned trip into Ukraine at the height of Stalin's genocide famine of Ukraine. He was supposed to be led by the nose as some useful idiot from the West. And instead he broke away from his Soviet handlers, went into the villages, witnessed the uh, catastrophe of the famine firsthand, got out, reported on it. And he lost his perch in this gilded world of, of power and access when he became persona non grata for calling out Stalin at a time when that just simply wasn't fashionable, and there's all sort of reasons why it was politically dangerous, and he ended up paying the ultimate price, not just with his reputation and his career, but all the research showed that he was murdered on his next reporting assignment by falling in with two men with connections to the Soviet secret police.
0: So there's an immense amount packed into that. Yes. (laughs) One element of which I just want to bracket because we're not going to talk about it, but it would justify a whole podcast of its own, which is, you know, the story of how someone from a relatively sort of the periphery of the UK at the time, you know, managed to become a foreign policy advisor to David Lloyd George, a you know worm his way onto hitler's plane con the entire soviet government into allowing him to report the famine you know that i mean there there's an incredible sort of human resourcefulness story here that is that i just want to put aside because while fascinating it's not actually why i wanted to talk to you about the movie i want to ask you why this is the story. I mean, the the, the, the truly remarkable thing, the, the reason we talk about this guy now almost 100 years later is that it is not entirely clear that but for him, the story of the Ukrainian famine, which was it, a human-induced genocide, would have ever become public. Stalin had been... Uh, incredibly effective at covering it up and because of the fashionable nature of the Soviet Union in the Western halls of power at the time uh, it's not entirely clear to me that he would not have succeeded in covering it up at least for a lot longer had had Gareth Jones not done this and so I'm I want to Know the story of how you got interested in this, and how near a miss we came to the actual deletion of this history.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I pursued this story because of my grandfather, who was born and raised in Donbas, a region of eastern Ukraine, far east of Ukraine, that's now and has been invaded by Russia since 2014. My grandfather grew up speaking, writing, thinking in Ukrainian, and then along came Stalin, who engineered his famine, mass murdered something like 5 million people, the vast majority in Ukraine, and that included an all-out attack on Ukrainian national identity, banning the language, forcing people to speak Russian, liquidating the intelligentsia, and so forth, mass arrests, all of that. When I was growing up in Northern California, my grandfather was the world to me. He was just your typical grandfather and did all the things that wonderful grandfathers do. And when he, shortly before he passed away, he wrote down his entire life story in Ukrainian using an old Ukrainian typewriter. And he left me that book. And so after I graduated university and I, st- I, I focused on Soviet history, I moved to Ukraine for several months in 2005, and I had my grandfather's memoir translated. And it was all these incredible stories of being a young child witnessing the Russian revolution, being fought on his family farm, uh, watching his school, his whole community being transformed by the communists, people being disappeared. Uh, he was a young man surviving Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. And then as a young father with an infant son, he was arrested and tortured during Stalin's purges. So my grandfather essentially lived all the events that Orwell allegorizes in animal farm. And that's how Orwell eventually makes his way into my, my script, Mr. Jones, uh, which we can talk about later. But so the whole idea of, of um, wanting to make this film, this project, came out of wanting, missing my grandfather, wanting me to feel close to him again. And I, I, I sort of stumbled on it in college when I was supposed to be writing a very serious history thesis on Ukraine. And instead, I was procrastinating by going down the research rabbit hole into, well, what was Stel- Stalin's genocide famine? And my, my particular interest was Walter Durante, because even as a little girl, I understood from stories from my family that there was this journalist by the name of Walter Durante and the same year he won his Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times, Stalin engineered this famine and Durante helped him get away with it. And I was just stuck with that. And so I was like, who is this Walter Durante guy? And the more I researched him in college, I came across these really, really intriguing stories of how he was lovers with the Satanist Aleister Crawley. They would do these black magic sex orgies in 1920s Paris. Durante would write Latin hymns for these orgies. They would do opium. They shared a lover for many years. And obviously as a college student, you're like, this is incredible. <laughs> and so that was sort of like my gateway drug, if you will, into into imagining all this as a film. And so Durante was sort of the start of some cinematic Idea, like I couldn't let go of that. And so, when I was living in Ukraine after college, I was searching for an anti durante who was the guy that dared to stand up to him. And around that time, Gareth's family had uncovered his diaries and and started promoting them in the press. And I was reading all about this. And so, it was in, I was sitting in a in a internet cafe on Krishatik in Kiev and reading all about this Gareth Jones. And it was just like struck by lightning. I was like, "Here's my hero. Here's my film." And I flew to London shortly after that and met with Gareth's niece, Serial Coley, who's an incredible woman in her own right. Um, she was a doctor, which was, you know, for a woman that's very much ahead of her time. She raised four sons. And she, you know, Gareth was her uncle, her beloved uncle. He was the world to her. He used to make her laugh. He used to send her, you know, gifts and funny letters. And so Cyril and I came together during that time where I wanted to honor my grandfather. And she was happy to work with me and help me to honor her uncle who was murdered. And, And so I just set out to do this as a labor of love. And I never, ever obviously imagined this history would repeat in any way. I just wanted to give voice to the countless millions of victims of Stalin's atrocities and, and get some justice back. And for me, growing up as a Ukrainian in America, I'd, I'd always, you know, when I tell people I'm from Ukraine, the Americans would switch it in their minds and say, oh, you're from Russia. And on top of that, no one had ever heard of Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. So I felt a lot of this, I don't know, I felt a lot of this pressure around me to try to set the record straight and build greater awareness. and, and build greater healing uh, through this story and gareth and and your other question how close we come to having gareth jones not be one of the most important and critical independent voices that recorded the famine in ukraine i mean it was remarkable obviously what he did and he had the whole western press establishment against him there were other voices like diplomats and and German colonists uh, who were living in Ukraine, others that did speak out, but Gareth did have a voice of authority given all of his political connections, and he was relentless in publishing getting the truth out there. He would not let Durante, with all of Durante's denials in the New York Times, stop him. So I think it was, it was Gareth leaving behind a long public record and putting his name and reputation behind it and trying to get, put pressure on other journalists at the time to do the same. So I think he's somebody that knew Ukraine well. In the film, we show it as his first journey. We had to use that poetic license just for efficiency sake. But He'd been to Ukraine, um, this was like his third trip. So he was an expert in the country. He saw, uh, even on previous trips, he saw that the country was headed towards disaster under Stalin. Um, so he had a lot of a, a authority behind it. And, and, and like I mentioned, he was just tenacious in trying to get the truth out. So all those things combined really left uh, an essential uh, independent record that historians rely on today.
0: Yeah, I mean I I I think about it in comparison to the Holocaust, which was also kind of in real time people had there was an argument about what was really happening, right? Were Jews being deported to the east and murdered or deported to the east and you know put in work camps or resettled, right? There was some there was some debate about it in real time which was I guess resolved in the short term when Jan Karski, who is kind of the the Gareth Jones figure, though not a journalist of of, of that period, revealed the you know came to London and re- revealed the existence of the camps in the longer term, it was resolved by the fact that the armies of the allies. Conquered the camps, right? And so we have these videos or these films. We have, you know, the the actual records of of the Third Reich. You know, we have, you know, we have the entire records of the German high command. And so the the fact that the Axis lost the war and the territory and the camps themselves were conquered answered the question. In the case of Ukraine, of course, that never happened. And so I, I really do think that there's a, you know, that both the contemporary activity of the people who revealed it and the uh subsequent historiography, particularly of the, you know, Anne Applebaums and Timothy Snyder's, you know, the the, the subsequent historiography and the contemporaneous actions like actually bear a lot more of the weight of what we know than, than is true of the Holocaust. Is is that right?
1: So you're saying, yeah, like in real time, the Holocaust was uncovered with the end of the war and had generations to sort of come out the full extent of it. Uh, whereas the famine in only recent years, the scholarship has finally sort of showed up for it. I think that's true. Obviously, Gareth Jones, as relentless as he was, the history was ultimately buried and in the same year where Stalin's famine was killing the most people, the U.S. under FDR's government officially granted the Soviet Union recognition and open trade and open diplomacy and all of that. So Stalin was rewarded this the same year he was mass murdering millions of people. And, of course, Hitler's watching all this and starts building his first concentration camp. Um, so the whole history of, of the famine didn't really come out in full. Obviously, you had Robert Conquest's book, Harvest of Sorrow, but it wasn't really until the fall of the Soviet Union where historians could not only gain access to archives in places like Ukraine, um, Soviet archives, but also they academics no longer had to bow down intellectually to the Soviet authorities to get full access. And Applebaum writes about Writes in Gulag how academia at the time, if you were a professor that was on was on the right side of of the issues with with the Soviets, you had an easier time, and and that created this whole intellectually oppressive environment for trying to study these issues. And of course, you still have to this day universities, teachers uh, up and down the curriculum teaching soviet history through a moscow lens the soviet union is a, a gaslighting term it wasn't a union it was russian genocidal colonialism where you had all of these captive states many that scrambled as soon as they could to enter nato and are now safely protected under nato and you you know you had so many cases of the russians coming in occupying countries like the baltics and poland and and liquidating the, the, the top cultural political elite and enforcing language changes and, and brutal terrorism oppression and, and and so forth and we've studied that the history of that period through moscow through this idea of of of, of Cold War chess match, where the real drive of what this period was 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 genocidal Russian colonialism, and we see it, of course, being re- repeated today with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, where where he's just deliberately mass murdering civilians and and bombing museums and all sorts of uh, cultural records, um, going back many years. He even bombed a Soviet archive, which is just gut-wrenching, because these are important records we need to expose and keep this history alive.
0: Yeah, so I want to ask you about the political reception to arguments like the one you just made, because, you know, I worked with with Anne Applebaum, you know, not on any of this, but we, we, we worked together while she was writing Gulag, and I was... You know, there was always a tenor of the reception to people like Anne that she was, you know, a right winger, justifying aggressive U.S. policy by f- focusing on sort of s- the Soviet Union in the particularly negative, with a particularly negative valence that she did. Whereas, of course, there's another way to think about that, which is just. Uh, telling the truth, you know there are a lot of people who would hear you say "genocidal Russian imperialism" with respect to uh, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, and before the last few months would say, "Come on, this is a fight between white people. This isn't colonialism. Uh, this is something else, right? It's the boundaries of one European nationalism with respect to another, and." you know, by the way, there were uh, a lot of Ukrainian, you know, Axis sympathizers a few years later. And so, you know, please don't map the language of post-colonial struggle onto or, or anti-colonial struggle onto this. You're kind of usurping uh, or appropriating the language of, you know, anti-racist, anti-imperial struggles to map onto uh, Soviet history. I throw that out there, not because I believe it. I actually think it's an incredibly offensive argument, but because some portion of the listenership is going to have that reaction to, to the last answer you gave. And I just want to throw it out and give you a, you know, why is it wrong?
1: Well, anybody who has that reaction hasn't studied Russian genocidal (laughs) colonial history, which is real and it exists, and um, no amount of political ideology can change that. And if people would like to get more coverage of that, one brilliant writer that I recommend is a guy by the name of Terrell Starr. He's a Black journalist from Detroit. He's covered a lot of Black issues through sites like the route where he was for many years he's interviewed Kamala Harris and a lot of a lot of black leaders and black organizers and throughout his career as a journalist and he's always had a focus on Ukraine and Russia and also Georgia because he spent time in those countries through the peace corps he speaks georgian he speaks ukrainian he speaks russian and one thing he's always pointing out is that russians <laughs> see ukrainians like some you know many white people especially in the neo confederacy see non white people and he talks a lot about how it was colonialism plain and simple and that and that yes white people can colonize other white people and just like non white people can be instrumental in their own oppression like a Candace Owens for instance so can ukrainians so can other other members of the power structure right? So Terrell did an amazing piece years ago in the Washington Post saying that Russia has a Russia supremacy problem. And we see it now in how Putin says Ukraine does not exist. His chief negotiator, Vladimir Medinsky, in these so-called peace talks with Ukraine right now, the guy representing Russia in the peace talks has said Ukraine doesn't exist. Ukraine's not a country. And a lot of the big folly we're witnessing of Russia's military in Ukraine is because they believed their own disinformation and stereotypes and dehumanization that's all over Russian propaganda. They believed that about Ukrainians. They saw... Russian state propaganda has said that Ukrainians are subhuman, so they really thought they could go in there and conquer all these subhumans. So they, they fell for their own sort of genocidal hatred. They're victims of their own genocidal hatred, if you will, with with this bashing that they're now getting in Ukraine. So I think, and the reason why Ukrainians are putting up such a fierce battle as they are and risking their lives and why so many Ukrainians from around the diaspora are returning home to fight is because of this Genocide that they've suffered under Russia in the past and that they're now currently facing. So yes, the history is very real. And this whole call, everything that I'm saying is is also, I'm taking leadership from the left progressives in Ukraine. Um, A leading LGBTQ thinker, Maxim Aristavi, keeps pointing it out to other leftists in America and around the world saying, this is genocide, guys. You need to wake up. You need to have solidarity. If you're of the left, if you're progressive, you need to open your eyes to what's the reality here on the ground. And that, yes, this is a genocide. And yes, Russian imperialism has been driven by genocide against those who are not Russian that's why you have out of the Kremlin, this whole idea of the Russian world. They, that's what they call it. Ruski Mare, like the, this whole Russian world that's going to take over. That's Russian imperialism. And it's carried out through brutal genocide, brutal tactics of, of terrorism. And so... I just take leadership from other progressives like myself and other experts in decolonizing our understanding of the world, and it all matches with the history and the facts on the ground. And just to sort of put us into these ideological boxes, I think it's—I think it's really gross. I think it—I hate this whole idea of looking at the world as a chessboard. I think that deprives nations like Ukraine any agency. Um, they're not a tool of any superpower. They—they they want their independence. Um, if you study closely, you. Ukraine's Zero If you watch the the brilliant documentary "Winter on Fire" about Ukraine's revolution, that revolution was a popular uprising that succeeded despite the West, not because of the West. I watched Zero very closely, very closely, day by day as that played out. I I launched one of the main hashtags of that revolution with complete strangers i joined with online it was called digital maidan we made that hashtag go viral to demand people focus on what was happening at ukraine at a time when the west couldn't be bothered i can tell you that that when the when western officials came in from europe and the u.s and tried to broker a peace deal with putin's puppet yanukovych and the and the sea of protesters one kid got up on stage and grabbed the microphone and said there's no peace deal. The president has until tomorrow morning to get out, or we're going to force him to get out. And sure enough, Yanukovych fled to Russia, where he's remained to this day. Um, so I think people that want to put this, put the world into neat little chessboard pieces, they're they're refusing to study the actual dirty, messy, chaotic reality on the ground, which is necessary to have a clear understanding of how the world works and where we are. And to sum up, sort of like this further, because it does bother me (laughs) greatly, is um, I remember going to a panel at the Brooklyn Museum organized by PEN America, featuring a delegation of Russian journalists and authors and editors, and the fancy, posh American journalist who was moderating this panel asked a question saying, well, hasn't the U.S. and NATO driven a lot of this tension with Russia and Ukraine and so forth. Some sort of qu- stupid question like that. And, and maybe it's a fair question to ask. All questions are fair to raise, of course. But it was some sort of typical leftist question like that. And the, the Russians on the stage looked looked at each other. And then one finally spoke up and said, well, sometimes things are black and white. Sometimes things are black and white. As much as we have, you know, issues here in the US that we must confront and all these inconvenient truths that we must absolutely uh, find the language to discuss, right, like, like genocide and the neo confederacy and white supremacy and all of these issues that we absolutely must confront continue confronting we at least live in a country where we can have these discussions, where we can elect people to run for office. I made a complaint one time to a member of Pussy Riot about problems in America, and she looked at me like, at least you can run for office without risking prison without risking being shot and so it's it's the russians it's the russians in the resistance against putin who keep reminding me of how many incredible rights we have here in america and that that freedom includes being able to call out our own government call out our, the systems of, of inequality here and and that's our moral obligation and we have to do that for others too including all the ukrainians that are suffering right now and and honor and acknowledge their own history and honor to acknowledge that yes, the term Soviet Union is gaslighting, and the accurate term is Russian genocidal colonialism.
0: It's that time of the year.
1: Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare
0: listeners. and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Just one uh, additional note on the phrase uh, ruski mir, which you obviously know, but listeners may not, the word "mir" in Russian uh, refers not just to world, but also means peace. Right, and so the phrase "ruski mir" is yes, it's Russian world, but it has this weird overtone of something like "pax romana" as well, right? That there's a, you know, that there's a, a zone, a, a world of peace in the in in the context of of Greater Russia. So it has this weird kind of Orwellian overtone to it that I think the translation Russian world doesn't quite capture.
1: Right. It's sort of like, so Putin called his military launching a total war against Ukraine as a peacekeeping mission. It's along that line.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I want to I talk to you a little bit about the history of the movie. I have uh, many wonderful historical stories Epics. I would love to write a screenplay of. How does one do that and get Agnieszka Holland to direct <laughs> it? That, that seems like a hell of a coup.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Well, it's. I, I'm. I'm happy to always chat about this anytime anyone finds it useful. Um. So, yes, how does one go about writing a historical screenplay? So my whole story was, you know, I spent years researching and writing this script. I saw a lot of my friends that I started with in, in journalism skyrocket past me in their careers and get fancy media jobs and, and their own shows on cable news where I was still juggling freelance assignments to give myself the, the time and the freedom to work on the script, even though it was going nowhere. And in 2015, I was really disheartened and I just felt so pathetic. (laughs) And I was I was on the verge of giving up. And then I had a group of friends, uh, um, Russian friends here in New York, invite me to a march in, in, in New York City in solidarity with Boris Nemsov's anti-war march in Moscow and across the country. Boris Nemtsov was a charismatic Russian opposition figure. He was young, charming, brilliant. He would give speeches in Kiev saying that Russia must give Crimea back. He united Ukrainians and Russians. And for that, he had to be killed, and he was killed in the shadow of the Kremlin. And so days before we're supposed to do our march here in New York City, in solidarity with Nemtsov's marches across Russia, I just saw the shock in in the eyes of my Russian friends. Our our march in New York City turned into a vigil for Boris Nemtsov, and I just became so angry from that that I, I did essentially a page one rewrite. Of Mr. Jones. I just did this angry, angry draft where I just grabbed the reader by the throat and just said, how dare you not care about what's happening right now? All of this history is happening again. And I sent that angry draft of Mr. Jones to the great Agneshka Holland, three-time Academy Award nominee. People around her said, don't give your hopes up. She's saying no to all these excellent scripts with big names attached. And so I, I didn't know what else I was going to do if Agnieszka said no. And the only way I got to her was through our mutual friend, Tim Snyder, uh, who wrote Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. Tim Snyder and his wife, Marcy Shore, another renowned historian, they are friends with her. And I, I'm friends with Tim. <laughs> I was like, I need her email address. So, so I went directly to Agnieszka's email and, and I... I saw her in Toronto where she at the film festival where she was on a jury there, and as soon as I met her, her mind was at work mapping out how we were going to get this film made. She was insisting we were going to shoot in Ukraine no matter what. She had all these big ideas for it, and I walked away from that meeting completely stunned, just needing a moment to realize that she had accepted to direct my screenplay. And she loved the script. She was just as angry as I was about what was going on in the world. The the refusal of the European Union to see how dangerous Putin was, right? And all the appeasement of Putin across Europe. She wanted to open up people's eyes with this film, the urgency of this history repeating. Agnieszka brought her own personal connection to Mr. Jones. Both her mother and father were journalists in soviet occupied poland where she grew up and her father's official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation so she had a lot to say with this film and as soon as she finished it as soon as she was done with the editing she just hit send (laughs) and she wanted it out at the very next festival it could go to and that was of course berlin and and so she always had this urgency urgency behind getting this film made even though she's juggling all these other projects big tv projects because she directs a lot of television um she was always prioritizing us always she had a special connection with telling the story in an authentic way there were times where we were offered several millions of dollars that we desperately needed to close the budget but the big catch was she had to fire me and get a new screenwriter because people wanted new scripts, new versions of this. They wanted something more palpable, more Western, more sort of glossier, more edit. And, and she just kept saying no. So she stood by me even when we were desperate for, for financing. So she just was somebody who was just creatively courageous throughout. She gave me and the actors a lot of creative freedom. We were constantly rewriting on set, we never had any boardroom of a studio anywhere looking over our shoulder and micromanaging us. We were just no guardrails, just flying, flying through the air together creatively and just coming up with whatever we thought was best in that moment. And it was probably the most um, spiritually enriching and exciting experience I've ever had. And so what you see on the screen is all of that richness coming through, all that, that authentic voice of every single artist who brought their, their touch to the, the film.
0: Yeah, and of course, Agnes Holland has a quite her own prior history of making films about genocides through the particular lens of individual stories. She's, of course, the director of Europa Europa, which is, you know, one of the 10, 15 truly great Holocaust movies.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely.
0: So... I am interested in one aspect of the film which is a choice on your part which is to frame it with a story of George Orwell's uh, engagement with Gareth Jones and I'm I'm interested first of all why you chose to make Orwell's understanding of this A kind of frame through which the viewer would understand the Holodomor, him or herself. But secondly, to what extent is that license, poetic license on on your part? And, you know, to what extent did the two have, have a real relationship?
1: So Orwell made his way into the script because I turned to Orwell for inspiration. I was having a very difficult time getting anyone interested in the script. Gareth Jones versus Durante, that alone was a tragic story. Durante ultimately wins. The truth is buried. Gareth's life is cut short. He's murdered the day before his 30th birthday. Durante lives out his comfortable life in Florida and dies at a ripe old age in Florida. And so I, I needed to find something to, especially for myself personally, to give myself some hope, a sense that good conquers evil and and all this and so i turned to george orwell for inspiration like how did george orwell mass market the atrocities of the soviet union to a global audience what was the magic of that storytelling and as i was reading uh, christopher hitchens introduction to animal farm hitchens mentions very briefly that orwell struggled for years to get animal farm published and somehow a copy ended up miraculously in the hands of ukrainian refugees who immediately understood the book's profound significance and got a hold of Orwell's home address in London and wrote him letters. And, and, and with Orwell's blessing, they translated Animal Farm into Ukrainian and gave it out in the refugee camps of World War II. And I was immediately struck by that. That was my happy ending where, you know, Gareth gets... Gets killed and silenced effectively, but then Orwell picks up. Orwell continues the work and he and he gets the story out there in a very big way through the power of art. And so I, I incorporated Orwell into the script, given all that. And shortly after I did that, I had dinner with my aunt and uncle at their farmhouse in the, in the Catskills. And I was telling them all that. You know, I, I told them about, about how Orwell's now in my script and, and how Orwell's is in there now because of this incredible story of Ukrainian refugees creating a Ukrainian translation of animal farm and getting the truth out there. And my uncle looks at me and goes, Oh yeah, I have a copy of that Ukrainian translation of animal farm. I picked it up in the refugee camp when I was a kid. And then my aunt gets up from the table and comes back with this yellow tattered book that I'd seen so many times in my research and then gave it to me. So when my uncle who's um, my mom's brother and, and this is this is the this is my mom's father the grandfather that inspired the whole film in the first place when when their family immigrated to new york city with only what with what they could carry they took with them this ukrainian translation of george orwell's animal farm and it's still in our family and that's how much that story meant to them finally getting the truth out and so that's how orwell ultimately made it into into the film and agneshka loved it agneshka wanted to keep it and the real life connections are that uh, that George Orwell, young Eric Blair was his real name. Eric Blair and Gareth Jones were about a year apart in age, and they were both represented by the same literary agent, Leonard Moore. And they're both friends with Malcolm Mugridge, another journalist who witnessed, who who was you know was based in Moscow and and finally left because he was so disgusted with with the Soviet lies, and so, and so those were the real life connections between them. And Agnieszka wanted a scene where they actually meet. The original idea was that George Orwell would serve as a Greek chorus, and he would come in and out. But Agnieszka wanted to bring them together, which I think works really well. Because when when we meet Orwell in the film, it's 1933. He's still on the fence about the Soviet utopia. He needs there to be a Soviet utopia, like so many on the left. And it wasn't until years later in 37, 1937, where he and his wife get married they go off to spain to fight fascists on their honeymoon and they're hunted by stalin's agents who are carrying out stalin's purges on the front lines of spain and then he comes out and writes of course his great book on on the spanish civil war and that itself becomes this enduring eyewitness account of stalin's purges and when how, how they impacted the spanish civil war and and the and the cause against fascism and how many on the left refused to see it. And because so many on the left refused to see it, Orwell then goes on to write Animal Farm, a book so simple, even children can understand it, because he wanted to open the eyes of his fellow progressives and say, stop worshiping that monster Stalin. He's not who you think he is, and he's going to actually bring down our cause. And 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 Gareth and Orwell were both these independent spirits, very much of the left, very much of greater greater equality and and human rights and. They're nonconformists, and and they they put the agency of the victims of history first and foremost. They wrote passionately and with with great empathy for for those that were otherwise seen as chess pieces by the great powers of the day. And so I so spiritually, intellectually, they're they're very much linked as well. And so we wanted to make that connection in the film.
0: So you mentioned earlier that there were a few points of license in the film. Uh, you. Uh, for example describe in the film uh, that this is his first trip to Ukraine it was in fact his third i was struck in watching the film at with the exception of the orwell relationship at actually how few points of license there are that obviously the dialogue is is made up but the 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 facts as depicted in the movie are remarkably consistent with you know the historical record and certainly on all the major points, uh what would you describe as the sort of major areas where you took poetic license other than an obviously fictionalizing dialogue that we that we we need to have make sense in order to tell the story
1: right so um there's one reviewer who wrote something like the strangest moments in Mr. Jones are true <laughs> like sort of the stranger to the moment the, the, the you know duranti with his with his hedonism and and all of that so yeah so the, the beats of the story are historically accurate obviously in telling the film i used a alfred hitchcock approach where you show the knife but not the knife going into the skin we, we wanted just to show a bit of the horror so we don't show the full extent of stalin's genocide, famine in Ukraine, the full extent of Although, the horror My
0: lord, I mean, the, I mean, there's a half hour in the middle of that film that is as hard to watch as anything in film I've but ever But it's seen. tame
1: compared to reality. If you want the full grimness of it, there's, um, so Tim Snyder's Bloodlands goes into how horrific it was. If I did a true to life famine film of what Stalin did to Ukrainians, it would be a, saw movie just one of those really over-the-top grotesque films you had orphanages overrun with children and and there's a report that some of the children in, in like a fever of hunger just turned on a, and started eating live another child like it, it was just really it was hell on earth that Stalin unleashed um, on Ukrainians and so obviously we had to show bits of that and and in Garib's own journey in March of, of nineteen thirty three in Ukraine, he was witnessing people on the verge of death. He didn't necessarily see dead bodies, but we had to show some of that in order to give people a glimpse of of the true horror of what it was like. And there's a scene in the film where Gareth there's a scene in the film taken directly from from my grandfather, from what he witnessed, what he wrote about in his memoir, and we, we put it in front of Gareth where he witnesses it. But this was a very common sight where um, Gareth is walking along and he sees a body collector collecting dead bodies off the street and putting it into the cart like trash, the cart behind his horse. And there's a, a still living infant pawing at his dead mother trying to get her get her to wake up. And the body collector comes and takes the dead mother and the still living infant and throws them in the back of his cart on top of the pile of bodies and just rides off to, to the local trash, to the local dump to bury them. And, and my grandfather witnessed that. And so we, we had Gareth witness that just to give people um, an idea of, of what this was like without overwhelming them.
0: So let's talk about Walter Durante, uh, who, as you say, died in Florida as a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, former New York Times Moscow correspondent. When I was a young editorial writer at the Washington Post, uh, Donald Graham, who was then uh, the chairman of the Post, Got disturbed by the fact that the Times had uh, never had to account for that, and that the Pulitzer Board—I think he was on the Pulitzer Board, or maybe maybe Fred Hyatt was—I forget what the institutional relationship was—but the Post always has a representative on the on the Pulitzer Board, and had never sort of taken account of that, and you know, I I, I think the the spiritual ambience of the of the concern was gosh you know if if in the middle of world war II, the new york times had uh, had had a reporter in berlin you know earnestly posting publishing articles uh that there were no death camps uh under ss auspices in poland and had won the pulitzer for it there is no way we would have gotten to 2001 or 2002 without a, a, an accountability for that decision. And so he asked, I don't think, I think this is reasonably public at this point. He asked Ann Applebaum, who was one of my colleagues on the uh, on the editorial page and was a, you know, had just written Gulag and was doing research that would later become Red Famine you know he asked her to do to 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 look into this and uh the two of them kind of made a case to the the Pulitzer board that it should revisit the Durante Pulitzer and they were i think they were very quiet about it because the the optics of you know a, a cabal in the, associated with the Washington Post seeking the return of a old New York Times Pulitzer would have a, a sort of valence uh, in the politics of journalism that would be optically ugly, and so they were keen not to make a big deal of it about it publicly, although I don't think either of them would mind my talking about it now twenty years later but i I you know the Pulitzer Board ended up making a statement that I think remains a completely shameful statement which basically acknowledged that the reporting was deficient, acknowledged that the history that we all know to have happened in fact happened, and yet said, we can't really retract Pulitzer's once given. And so I, I, I continue to think this is almost mind boggling. And I, I just actually don't know how to process it even 20 years later. And I've never really taken the Pulitzer prizes seriously since then the fact that durante's pulitzer was was never revoked shows up as a kind of coda in mr jones and i'm i'm just curious for your you know your feelings about it and your sense of what what it means that in 2002 which sounds like a long time ago but isn't the pulitzer board actually spent time thinking about this and had the benefit of, of all people and Applebaum submitting, I think, a pretty substantial document on it. And decided, nah, it's fine, you know, uh Stalin's reporter in Moscow is good enough for us.
1: Yeah, it's it's infuriating. So what happened was it wasn't just Anne, it was also a big grassroots movement of Ukrainian Americans protesting the new york times and so the, the new york times then hired a, histor- a historian to be a consultant and review Duranty's reporting which won him the pulitzer prize and this historian mark von hagen who i believe was at columbia university at the time he came out and said you know duranti won the pulitzer prize for articles that were essentially kremlin press releases and he made the assessment that his Pulitzer Prize should be taken away, that it fell very short of the standards. But more than that, he aided a genocide. And what ended up happening was, I think it was the New York Times executive editor at the time, Bill Keller, releasing a statement, talking out of both sides of his mouth, saying, we don't stand by Duranty's reporting, obviously. But if you take away his Pulitzer, that's like uh, erasing people from history, which is what the Soviets did. And so that sent a signal, of course, to the Pulitzer committee that the, that the New York Times wouldn't be happy about losing this Pulitzer. But what Bill Keller gets wrong is that in 1931, when Duranty was publishing Soviet press releases in the New York Times, that would win him the Pulitzer. So in, in 1931. Stalin was already laying the groundwork for his genocide against Ukrainians. There was a Soviet film... Of course, made by the state, dehumanizing Ukrainians, showing Ukrainian farmers as a as a villain, as locusts that needed to be destroyed, um, using all of this genocidal hate speech to dehumanize Ukrainians. All the all of the same sort of genocidal hate speech that's been coming out of the Kremlin and Putin in years leading up to his total war against Ukraine. It's the same thing. And if you stu- and, and anybody that studies genocides and how they work, they always begin with hate speech. They always begin with with rampant disinformation and propaganda to lay the groundwork to justify the mass murder to to dehumanize the victims and that was already well in motion when duranty won his Pulitzer prize so bill keller and the new york Times tried to minimize that and say well duranty won his article won his prize for 1931 and the famine happened in 32 the famine didn't happen by simply flipping on a light switch and overnight millions were dead it needed all of the groundwork to be laid first. And that is what Durante covered up deliberately with his Pulitzer Prize winning Soviet press releases, and then covered up again, when he published in response to Gareth Jones, when Durante published in the New York Times, there is no famine. So he helped the Soviets get away with a genocide. How many Pulitzer Prize winners have done that? Hopefully not many, but Duranty. I, I know. I know Ann Applebaum has has pointed out that the Pulitzer committee doesn't want to go down that whole slippery slope of investigating Pulitzer Prize winners from the past because of all the dirty things they might uncover. But Duranty is an extreme outlier. Duranty was a Pulitzer Prize winner who won his Pulitzer Prize. At the same time, by helping the Soviets lay the groundwork and then later get away with a genocide, that is an extreme case, and that is why he should lose his Pulitzer Prize, if we're taking down statues to Confederate generals, if we're taking down statues to Stalin and Lenin and and the founder of the Soviet secret police in Ukraine and elsewhere, then this is a statue that needs to be taken down. You know, it, it's the same argument. It's, a, it, it's the same reason. Um, this is a symbol of genocide, this Pulitzer Prize. And um, I, I also want to point out that when our production, when the Mr. Jones team reached out to the New York Times to ask them if we could quote Durante's March 1933 article directly in our film where he denies the famine, the New York Times said no. The New York Times said no. I remember sitting on set in... Poland with Igneshka, the two of us alone in her trailer, when we just got this news and we were just staring into space, trying to wrap our brains around why the New York Times would deny us the right to quote Duranty's article his actual article what were they trying to hide what were they trying to cover up what was their reasoning behind this we simply didn't see it so there's has been this weird resistance by the New York Times to try to protect they they don't stand by it obviously they say all the right things there but they're not being helpful in trying to heal this history and confront this history in, in a way with you know with respect and 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 integrity they're being really shameful
0: yeah so i i Actually, think that latter point emphasizes an area where I would actually disagree with you. I don't think this is like Confederate statues or a statue to uh, Stalin. A town that has, and I'm, I'm don't get me wrong, I am not for the maintenance of Confederate statutes, but a, a statue to you know a memorial to Nathan Bedford Forrest in a town in the South. That town is not an institution whose motto is all the news that's fit to print. The the town is not an institution dedicated to informing people. It is not an institution that, you know, insists that its work in life has something to do with truth. The New York Times is such an institution. It has no business telling uh, you and Agnesia Holland that you can't quote their most shameful moments. And similarly, the Pulitzer board is, unlike a town that may build a monument to, you know, or the Soviet Communist Party that may build a monument to Lenin, is an institution that's supposed to be, you know, the, the Pulitzer prize in these things is for people who best inform, who, who, who advance truth and, and understanding and knowledge. It's not a memorial, and so I, I actually think you're you're giving it you may be giving it a little bit too much credit there.
1: Either way, the, the prize needs to go and the, for Durante. And the only way I see that happening is if there's another groundswell of grassroots efforts, which there is currently. There's a petition by a group of uh, a Ukrainian grassroots organization, and if, if people can find that petition on Ukraine genocide.com where they can sign a petition to demand that Durante finally loses his Pulitzer and you also need a lot of experts like Anne Applebaum like yourself to come out and demand this as well so it needs to be a bottom top all of it uh, up and down approach to finally putting pressure on the Pulitzer board I think the time is right especially given that this history is repeating in Ukraine today.
0: I cannot recommend this film highly enough for those who have not seen it. Uh, Andrea Chalupa, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, become a material supporter of Lawfare. You know you should, you know you want to, so just do it. Get ad-free podcasts, get some cool other stuff, join us on Lawfare Live. You know, patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.